You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a festive Middle East analysis as we career towards 2022, the very last days of 2021. Now, obviously, I hope you're all well out there. These are worrying and trying times with Omicron and the various different um, pieces of news from around the world that come our way with regard to COVID. But I'm not going to get off on the wrong foot with a bit of a downer. I'm going to bring in our guest, who you all know, because he is the voice of Middle East analysis. Dr. Harry Hagopian. Harry, how are you doing? Hello, James. It's a pleasure to be with you on Middle East Analysis again. And yes, I agree with you entirely. Uh, The Omicron variant and COVID-19 has once again made us all worried, but it is the end of the year. So I leave this episode in your very capable hands. Well, you know what? I was, as you know, as we spoke uh, off mic, I was supposed to be in the Middle East in January. And unsurprisingly, that is now not going to happen, although you rather suspected that would be the case. So, yes, I am here. You are here. Uh, travels postponed for the time being. And what we're going to do is something of a I, I love the, the word or the phrase fireside chat. And I think that's what we're going to make this. There, there are some very serious topics within that. That chat, but in your own style, Harry, we will literally go around the houses, the Middle East, North Africa, the Gulf. We're going to do the lot and we'll try and keep it uh, within three quarters of an hour or so. I'm, you know, we, we both love a chat, but I'm sure we can manage that. So where to go? There's just so much to talk about. And 2021 has definitely been that sort of year of anniversaries, hasn't it? There have been sort of elections galore, elections postponed and then elections happening and all manner of things. And and Libya, as we might come on to a little bit later on Christmas Eve, I believe their elections are scheduled for. So there's, you know, been much change, new guard, old problems. We talked about that a little bit this year, didn't we, in the last few podcasts. And it's it's that sort of crucial anniversary time because it's pretty much 10 years from dot, dot, dot. You add what you want. The Tunisian Revolution, the Cairo protest in Tahrir Square, 10th anniversary of the death of um, Gaddafi, Libya, of course, um, and a million other things because it is that sort of crucial. I mean, who thought, for instance, Harry, that um, Bashar al-Assad would still be in power a decade on in Syria after you and I spoke over a number of podcasts about the awful things that were happening there in 2011. Um, Anyway, where do we start, Harry? I mean, where I would kind of like to start because it's been, you know, picked out on the news agenda for a while is the JCPOA, uh, otherwise known as Iran's nuclear deal to most people, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, I think, to give it its uh, correct name. Now, there were restoration talks, weren't there, in Vienna that were suspended on the 3rd of December. So I guess with that one, quick, quick, snappy question, dead, dying or in a coma? Not dead, James. Somewhere between dying and in a coma, and usually, not usually, but at times, uh, comatose patients do die. So there is a link there between coma and death. Uh, It's unfortunate, actually, because the JCPOA, in my humble opinion, was an achievement, one of the few achievements of President Barack Obama uh, during his presidency, uh, when he managed to bring this together in negotiations between the P5 plus one and uh, Iran. 
And of course, after that, during the Trump presidency, given that he was basically being bullshy about all manners of things, that he pulled out of the JCPOA. And I think that is almost a starting point to see where we are and the problems we're facing today. Because the JCPOA that the Americans and their European allies uh, and China and Russia negotiated with uh, Iran was an imperfect agreement, but at least it was an agreement that limited the proliferation of nuclear arms and the proliferation of those arms in Iran as a threat in the Gulf region. However, uh, Trump's pulling out of that basically threw the cat amongst the pigeons. And since then, we are facing the consequences of that decision by President Trump. Because when people talk about the JCPOA today, they only talk about the fact that the Iranians are not playing by the rules, that they are not willing to negotiate their ballistic missiles, that they are enriching their radioactive fissile material. And all this might be true, but what they seem to avoid or omit or forget is that all this started because the Americans withdrew from the JCPOA. And one of the consequences of that is that the Iranians who have lost uh, their trust that an American president's signature is enough for an agreement, that they are actually now looking at different ways of basically uh, securing their own uh, well-being. And what we have been witnessing through the interminable uh, chapters at the Coburg Hotel in Vienna is that they are basically trying to get the most out of the United States and the Europeans uh, before they sign on the dotted line, if sign they do. So at the moment, I think it's uncertain. The Americans, of course, are negotiating via their Western proxies because they're not even in the same Hotel, And I find that silly because even the staunchest enemies can surely sit around the same table and talk face to face. And my own experience, limited and humble though it is compared to what they're trying to do in Vienna, is that if you look into the eye of the foe or the opponent, you actually can achieve more than have somebody, a messenger, deliver uh, messages from one hotel to another. So at the moment, things are limping along. Israel is not helping because Israel's new, well, sort of new, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is pressuring uh, the Americans and uh, President Joe Biden not to negotiate a revised JCPOA. The Gulf countries are worried because they feel that their own safety is compromised by such an agreement with a, an aggressive Iran in the region. And the Western allies, namely the United Kingdom, France and Germany, uh, don't really have much of a voice. 
And the other two partners of the P5, Russia and China, have an entirely different agenda because unlike what happened during the first JCPOA in 2015, where China and Russia very much wanted the agreement to succeed, now they're more siding with Iran in some of the arguments and they want to be troublemakers as much as facilitators in these new rounds of negotiations. So this is basically the background. This is what the year has brought to us uh, with the JCPOA Iran. Iran has its arms in Lebanon, it has its arms in Syria, it has its arms in Iraq, and it has its arms in Yemen. And Iran doesn't want to lose that, doesn't want to lose its deterrent edge, and therefore things Uh, continue limping on until such time as one or both parties, namely United States and Iran, come to the conclusion that enough bluffing, enough going around the issues, and either doing it or not doing it. Signing it, in my opinion, would be the favorable uh, outcome. Not signing, or if the agreements collapse, then we're in for a very rocky period in 2022. Yeah, nicely summed up, Harry. Now, ordinarily in a Middle East analysis, I chuck a question or two in, obviously, but I think that's nice and rounded. And we're going to move on. We're going to chuck another log on the meaner fire with our fireside chat. Now, this to be honest, Harry, is kind of winging it with intelligence, I've got to say. Um, we're, we're taking on so many realities, but we're not trying to be light, but we're trying to keep moving, aren't we? Keep the momentum up. So next, a little bit generally, we will talk about, you know, places like Lebanon, those sort of counter-revolutions that are paralysing the region. I mean, we, we, we've talked, lamented the situation in Lebanon, wondered if there's, you know, a, a new dawn. And it always seems to be a sort of state of paralysis. Where where are we at with Lebanon? That's a very good question, uh, James. And I really enjoyed winging it with intelligence. I should remember <laughs> that one when I write a blurb next. Uh, let me identify, first of all, what I call the revolutionary movements across the whole of the Arab world. And they came in two phases. The first phase started in 2010-2011, and it was initiated by the self-immolation of a Tunisian uh, guy in Tunisia. Then it spread from there into uh, Egypt, it spread into Libya, it spread into um, Syria. And then there was the second phase, or the second chapter of uh, uprisings, And that included Sudan, Lebanon, and Iraq. Now, as a lot of commentators have said, those uh, uprisings, those revolutionary movements, the popular movements by people seeking some freedom, some dignity, some independence, their loaf of bread, by and large, failed. The one exception used to be until recently Tunisia, and that's also failed now. So in a sense, why have they failed? They have failed for a whole variety of reasons, whether we look at the first set of uprisings or the second set of uprisings. On the local level in each country, what those uprisings demonstrated is that when you live in an autocracy, when you live in countries where it's the top man, and usually it's a man, 
rules over the roost, then there are no institutions. There are no infrastructures. It's just the man who decides everything from the smallest to the biggest uh, decision that needs to be made. And therefore, these people who went out into the streets asking for dignity, asking for freedom, asking for food, uh, and they were by and large unarmed, they did not have the country they were in, did not have the institutions that would facilitate their endeavors. They did not have the ready people who had the experience and the culture to take over. And they were faced by people who were so very much embedded in their uh, positions of authority and power and corruption that they were very difficult to move or nudge or remove. So in a sense, that was one reason which was domestic. The outside reason was the fact that no matter which country you take, in different ways I agree, but there is a kernel of truth in there. When you look at what happened, there are some countries, some countries in the Gulf, other countries which did not want this to happen because they thought that authoritarianism and autocracy provided security and stability, whereby uh, those uprisings basically threw everything up in the air, which is true because no institutions, no clear replacement, uh, things would be very... That's what a revolution is all about. Uh, if you look at Europe, if you look at France, if you look at elsewhere. So in a sense, they wanted stability, they wanted security, they wanted their neighborhood not to be rocked by all these people who dared to go out and seek their uh, fundamental freedoms. And therefore, they threw in so much money to quench, to stop, to uh, stunt those uh, movements. And they also had a lot to do with the counter-revolutionary movements that were used with sheer impunity in order to get the people to stop going out uh, into the streets. Now, add one layer to this, and that is COVID, which was, in a sense, a godsend for those authoritarian figures because COVID frightened people and people were less willing to go out and demonstrate in the streets, wrapping themselves up with their own national flags, because they said, well, if we go there, it's certain death if we get the virus, particularly since the jabs, the vaccines, the hospitals were not up to scratch in some of these countries. So put all these together, and what happened is something that you and I have discussed in the past as well, uh, James, and I'm going to contradict myself here by changing my approach. In the past, I often used to tell you the genie is out of the bottle, the genie cannot be forced back into the bottle. Well, given the internal realities and the external impunity, in some of these countries, the genie has literally been manacled and forced back into the bottle until the next chapter, whenever 
that comes. And that is the case in Lebanon, that is the case in Iraq, that is the case in Syria, that is the case in Sudan today, that is the case in Libya, that is even the case in Tunisia. And that's where we are. The genie is being forced back into the bottle and people's freedoms are once more being snuffed out. Yeah, absolutely, Harry. Now, look, I do want to throw in one slight left field um, <laughs> question here, because 2021 was also quite significant. You, you talked about some countries there, one of which was Iraq. And Pope Francis this year was the first pope to visit Iraq. So that was historic and noteworthy. And um, also, you know, there were many fruits of that visit for sure. But Speaking to the Cardinal Patriarch, um, Patriarch Louis Sarko, he was very much of the opinion that at street level, the the people were getting on better post-visit. Now, I don't know how long that sort of thing lasts, but all in all, it was very positive, wasn't it? Uh, yes, it is. But that's the case with the Pope. The Pope has a very sort of consoling uh effect on the places that he visits. People go out there, they're very happy to meet with him. He's a wonderfully charismatic uh, person. And I know from friends I have in Iraq, not only the Chaldean Catholic patriarch that you just referred to, but also others who said to me that there was a visible change in the approach, even of the authorities, to everything that was happening in in Iraq, because he didn't only go to uh, Baghdad. As you know well, he went to Mosul, he went to Kurdistan, he went down to the south and met with the foremost leading uh, Ayatollah in the region, Ayatollah Sistani. But that was ephemeral. You know, when you are starving, when you don't have food, you don't have money, you don't have hope, you don't have prospects. You get somebody like the Pope who comes carrying a message of peace and fellowship and hope. That uh, basically encourages you, excites you for a while. And then when that person goes and the same problems come again and sort of hammer you on the head, it's very difficult uh, to be to remain optimistic and to remain excited, and that is what's happening with all these countries in Iraq, for instance. We've had elections; the results have been quite clear for all and sundry, and yet many parties are refusing to accept the uh, results because they have lost, and we have been in a process of trying to wangle our way out of this with a half-decent solution that would not break the country into different polarized camps and lead to more violence. And that makes you realize the enormity of the challenge facing most of these MENA countries, no matter which way you look, east or west. Yeah, absolutely, Harry. Now, look, we are going to try and move from the Middle East to North Africa to the Gulf. Um, but a few more quick realities I want to ask you about. I was having a chat actually with somebody about the two-state solution. Now, I can't see you, but I don't know if you're rolling your eyes or wincing or, or doing something <laughs> of that nature. But it is a, a very painful topic of conversation. You know, Palestinian self-determinism. Will there be a state, two states side by side? 
And we, we've had deal of the century conversations, haven't we, in Trumpian times and so forth. But I was talking about those settlements and how, well, you know, is it even possible to have a, a contiguous state at this point with the rate the settlements are being built and, and crucially geographically where they're being built and checkpoints and all this sort of stuff. And it's very hard not to get rather down in the dumps, isn't it? So I would, would like you, not necessarily to, to talk about the virtues of the two-state solution, I think we know those, but tell us a little bit about what's happened with regard to Palestine, Israel, the settlements in 2021 and where we're at exactly. One, James, one of the leading thinkers and analysts that I really like is Dr. Marwan Amashir. He's a Jordanian who used to be a minister in, the, in a former Jordanian government, and now he has a very prominent position in the Carnegie Endowment think tank. And Dr. Marwan Amashir has been talking for a while, and there is a, a, a paper that came out. I don't know whether it's an occasional paper or something more. I can't remember in which he and some of his colleagues were saying the two-state solution is dead. It's over. Guys, don't keep talking about the two-state solution. There is no more space for a two-state solution. Now, if I look at what is happening in the topography of uh, Palestine, and by Palestine, I am going to limit myself to the occupied Palestinian territories as defined by international law, that is, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. If I look at Palestine today, and I look at the settlement, and I look at the measures that Israel has been imposing across this territorial space, like Dr. Amasher and like a lot of other people, I also give up hope of a two-state solution. We have been talking and we have been discussing and we have been reading and some of our listeners might have done the same about all sorts of projects that the new Israeli government led by uh, two rotating prime ministers, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, uh, have been enforcing upon Palestinians. We've talked about the hashtag Sheikh Jarrah, which is a suburb in East Jerusalem, where some Palestinians uh, were being forced out of their homes so Israeli settlers could come and uh, take over. We've been talking about the huge project that is uh, being considered for uh, what is known as Kalandia, or in Hebrew, Atarot area, which is just north of uh, Jerusalem, where settlements are also going to be uh, proposed and built by Israel. We're talking about the ugly separation wall that divides uh, communities, Palestinian communities, one from the other. And the latest one that people know something about, but not that much, is what is known as the E1 project, which basically is a project that touches upon many Palestinian villages, Silwan, Isawiye, Anata, etc. But what its purpose is, is to divide completely, once and for all, Jerusalem, and by that I mean East Jerusalem, the Palestinian side, from the West Bank, and also the northern West Bank from the southern West Bank. 
Now, if this E1 project, which Israel has resurrected again, Netanyahu had it in his bag for many years. E1 is not a new creation. This settlement project has been ongoing for years, and due to pressure from the Americans and the Europeans, it never actually was activated. But now there, there are noises being made that it is going to be activated once more. And if it is activated, then whether one still believes in the two-state solution or the one-state solution or the binational, the rights-based solutions, whatever, one would realize that there is no way when you fracture that land completely by isolating Arab Jerusalem from the West Bank north and the north from the southern part of the West Bank. And Gaza is an open prison anyway. Nobody can go in or out, even cats and dogs that are stray animals, unless Israel agrees to that. When you look at that, it is rather disingenuous to say, oh yes, the two-state solution. And in a way, the two-state solution is a very nice formula that the Europeans including the European Union and the Americans, including this administration and Secretary of State Blinken, are very happy to use the mantra of two-state solution because it uh, makes them not think too much about, okay, the two-state solution is, is gone, what comes next? If you keep saying the two-state solution, it's almost like it's in progress. It's going to happen, maybe not tomorrow, maybe the day after. So in a sense, that is what's happening. But what also I would add, James, is that I was one of the people who was very critical of Benjamin Netanyahu, the former Israeli prime minister. I was also very critical of the former uh, American president, Donald Trump. And I was really caustic about his decisions to move the American embassy to Jerusalem, to close the consulate which dealt with Palestinian affairs right smack in the heart of Arab East Jerusalem, uh, the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the recognition of the Golan Heights as Israeli territory. I was very, very critical of both Netanyahu and Trump. But whom have we been replaced by? We've been replaced by uh, Naftali Bennett in Israel and by uh, Joe Biden in the United States. And I do not think, perhaps unlike some others, I do not think that they are much better for Palestinians. Why? Because Naftali Bennett, who used to be the leader of a settlers' movement in the past before he found himself a prime minister for a rotating prime minister for a couple of years he is supposed to be the softer version of netanyahu he's not uh, joe biden was supposed to be the person who brings the uh, opens the palestinian consulate general again who does a whole range of things in order to encourage palestinians not to lose hope much of that has not been done. And let's not forget that Joe Biden is the person who once said, I am more Zionist than a Jewish Zionist. So in a sense, 
I think that Netanyahu and Trump were the execrable figures of uh, polarizing extremism, whereas Naftali Bennett and Joe Biden are not doing much to improve the lot of the Palestinians. In fact, during Naftali Bennett's time is when the E1 project has been resurrected. And for me, that's one of the most contentious uh, projects which links up Maale Adumim, the big settlement block with Jerusalem, and then does all those divisions I talked about. So in a sense, what I would say is that if I don't want to repeat Dr. Marwan Masher's uh, prognosis and say that there is no more two-state solution, perhaps I will pay lip service to it. After all, just like him, I too was involved in the Oslo negotiations, which were meant to produce a two-state solution, and they failed miserably. But then again, in hindsight, uh, people could be much cleverer. I would say that it is on its death knell. And if the E1 is not stopped, if those projects from the Atarot Kalandia, which is near the small airport in Arab East Jerusalem, to these settlements are not stopped, stopped, then you can well say goodbye to the two-state solution. Now, somebody would say, so what? The Palestinians are defeated anyway. Or as Golda Meir, a former prime minister of Israel, used to say, there is no such thing as Palestinians anyway. So what do you do with the Palestinians? Do you send it to Jordan? Do you send them all to Jordan and say, well, anyway, half of Jordan is made of made up of Palestinians. You can go and recreate your state in the kingdom of Jordan. I would be one of the first people to object uh, to that because of a very simple fact. Palestinians in their majority do not want to recreate their state in Jordan. They want it on the land that is theirs. Do you know what, Harry? It reminds me of a French phrase you used to me in casual conversation not so long ago, especially your point about uh, Naftali Bennett and um, Joe Biden. Plus ça change Plus c'est la même chose. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we are in a situation where, you know, I'm going to give you another, it's the end of the year, so we can be a little bit uh, esoteric. Uh, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. I can give you another one. You know I'm a fan of Star Trek. Indeed. And Star Trek has virtual realities where basically two or three different realities live next to each other, coalesce, and they keep repeating themselves. And Star Trek, the ship, is caught up in a, in, a, in a loop and doesn't manage to get out of it, but just keeps repeating the same things over and over again. We are in one of those loops, and the people who are suffering most are the uh, Palestinians. I was, I, I'm amazed at the number of Palestinians who are able to build up a viable, secure, peaceful state. If only they were given the opportunity to do that, and yet everything is being done to stop it by Israel. America is complicit by its silence, and the European Union and the Europeans in general uh, have lost it anyway in the sense that they don't know what to do politically so they throw money at the problem 
hoping that it would go away. And the United Kingdom, which is a very close ally to Israel, our own country here, is a country that has helped create the problem all the way back in the 1900s. So I don't expect them to suddenly uh, change uh, position drastically other. Hence, agreed with you, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. And you know what? When you were talking about E1, it does feel a bit like the uh, executioner's axe, doesn't it, with regard to the two-state solution? I remember back in 2017, when I was uh, in Jerusalem, just overlooking sort of Malay Adamim in the distance, and I had this map in front of me that had a big sort of E1 borders uh, written on it. And I remember looking at it then, what's that, five years ago, thinking, crikey, if this happens, it's gone. No chance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as far as I'm concerned, it is gone. Palestinians have lost a lot. They have given up a lot. They have suffered a lot. And yet what is happening is that they're being snookered again by Israel with the tacit complicity or silence of the Americans and the uh, Europeans and with some Arab countries from the Gulf or from the uh, MENA region, basically saying, oh, well, yes, uh, this happens, and sort of giving uh, sparse support just to save face. This is the reality uh, today. So two-state solution, I doubt it. I don't want to say it's dead and buried, but definitely comatose or dying. Well, I'd love to bring us on to cheerier things, Harry, but that's so rarely the case. You mentioned when we spoke about that little postscript to um, Lebanon, Iraq, Sudan, talking about those those revolutions, counter-revolutions, you talked about the starving, you know, no food, no hope, no prospects. And I'm afraid what I think about when I think about a sort of humanitarian disaster of that nature is Yemen. Now, we talked about Yemen a few times in 2021, understandably. Um now that blockade's been going on since what 2015 it's a long time now and people are starving people are dying in in their huge numbers cholera we've heard haven't we over the years and what 85,000 children I believe it was the save the children were, were reporting a couple of years ago that had died those figures are clearly getting worse where are we with Yemen Harry Yemen is in the same mess that it was uh, a year ago, and you're right, since the war, since 2016, it's been an absolute mess, and uh, the war basically at the moment is being led by the Saudis. Interestingly enough, the Emiratis, who were in an alliance with Saudi Arabia in that war, somehow discreetly and in other instances not so discreetly, pulled out of the military side of it, but they are also still in control of parts of, uh, of Yemen. We've spoken, I think, in a previous MEA episode about Yemen, the reality of Yemen, and I've sort of waxed lyrical about the archipelago, the Socatra archipelago at the time, and in fact you were kind enough uh, to put an image of that in one of our MEA episodes. So Yemen is still in the same mess, and at the moment it's divided where uh, the north is fighting the south, where some people are being uh, 
aided, supported by Iran, while others are being uh, supported by the West, such as Saudi Arabia. And of course, what happens here, because Saudi Arabia thought that if it could secure Yemen, that it would be able to have an insulation, a buffer with Iran, and therefore it would feel more secure. Little did it know that the zeal and the persistence of some Yemenis uh, was so great and that the geopolitics of the region was so fragile that it wasn't going to be such an easy job. What they thought they would achieve in three months, they've been trying to achieve in five years with no result as far as I see it. So who is suffering? The people are suffering. I mean, it's it's awful. I know some people who work in Yemen. The Anglican Church, by the way, the Episcopal Church has a, a clinic in uh, Adan, in Aden, uh, theirs and they're trying to run it and they know the difficulties of finding qualified people to run it and Aden is not in the eye of the needle. The real uh, problem is in the north around Ma'rib because that's where you have the oil, that's where you have the flow of money and that's how you control the country and you control what comes into the country and goes out of the country. So at the moment, uh, all I can see, if I look at 2021 and I project onto 2022, unless there is a radical rethink by the powers to be, including Saudi Arabia and its crown prince, who pretty much runs the kingdom, uh, we're going to see more misery, more deaths and more suffering, James. Yeah, an, an absolute tragedy and, and can't really escape our attention that the UK can give, you know, four million on the one hand and provide bombs on the other. So, you know, what what foreign powers are doing is, is sort of in their own interests, as always, isn't it? So um, if the foreign very powers sad. were not helping one side or the other, the internal, the fighters themselves, the Yemenis would have by now extinguished any option of continuing to fight. But there is always somebody who eggs them on. There is always somebody who tries to uh, move in, encroach upon the territory and keep the conflict alive because of their own uh, geostrategic uh, calculations. And again, as as I have often said, and this is not what a real analyst does, but I do it, is that people are the ones who are suffering. So for me, what matters are the people, the ordinary Yemen is not only the variables and the uh, political realities of the country or of that part of the world. Yeah, indeed. And and the blockade was supposed to have ended in 2021, or there was a lot of talk about it, but um, that seems to just be talk. So you and I will pick this up, I'm sure, in our future Middle East analysis podcasts. Now, Harry, um, I don't know whether to just sort of flit around and move into North Africa or carry on with Gulf situations. Which would you prefer? I'm going to give you a choice. Okay, well, since we're talking about Yemen and we talked about Saudi Arabia, I might as well uh, quickly talk a little bit about uh, the GCC and the Gulf as well, uh, James, and perhaps after that go into North Africa if you so wish. Yeah, why not? Well, with regard to the GCC, we've had the sort of tour of um, the Saudi crown prince who gets his own moniker, doesn't he? The MBS. Yes. Macron, um, Emmanuel Macron, um, 
in Jeddah. Something of a rehabilitation of um, Mohammed bin Salman, is that fair to say? That is quite fair to say, yes. I mean, there is a lot happening in uh, in the Gulf region. And of course, uh, no matter how important all the six GCC countries are, nobody can deny the fact that the big country, the really powerful, uh, influential country is Saudi Arabia by virtue of its uh, oil, by virtue of its size and by virtue of its population when compared uh, with the other uh, countries. Let me put it this way, James, uh, for our viewers, since we are contemplating uh, a year's products. uh, Listeners might know that there was a blockade of Qatar by three GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and they were supported by Egypt outside the GCC uh, stellar constellation. Now, that embargo failed, the blockade failed. At the very least, it was an even result. I would say that uh, Qatar very wisely used that blockade at the beginning very painstakingly, but later on with more confidence in order to build up its own infrastructure and in order to be able to uh, look beyond the GCC. But that blockade that lasted for a number of years failed, and at the end, at Al-Ula summit uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, the reconciliation between the different GCC countries, the three on the one side and Qatar on the other, because the Sultanate of Oman and Kuwait were never part of this uh, blockade or this punitive position, the reconciliation started. Now, that's one thing. The second thing, of course, is the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey, a very prominent and a very much liked journalist, commentator, speaker, Saudi, who was killed in the Saudi embassy, allegedly dismembered, and his body parts have disappeared. And that was traced back not only to the Saudi royal family, but to the crown prince himself. You used his moniker MBS. And the third one is basically Lebanon, where, again, three of those countries, perhaps perhaps also with Kuwait, decided to boycott Lebanon because they were fed up of Lebanon being unable to reform itself, to rid itself of corruption, but principally because they did not agree with the fact that Hezbollah, the Shiite militia in Lebanon, was pretty much in control of the country. Those who tell you that Lebanon is a sovereign country should look further south in the country. That is the body that pretty much decides what happens uh, in Lebanon. It's been weakened a little bit recently, but it is still a force uh, to reckon with. Now, in all of this, Uh, comes in uh, President Emmanuel Macron, who decided to basically, who's been very interested in Lebanon, who wanted to help Lebanon stand uh, on its feet again, and who decided to go to Jeddah to meet with the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed uh, uh, MBS in, uh, in Saudi Arabia in order to see whether those broken relations 
with Lebanon could be restored because Lebanon needs the financial support and the diplomatic support of the Arab countries. In other words, the GCC, including Saudi Arabia. Otherwise, it will go further even, if possible, into the Iranian orbit. So he went there. Now, that was part of his intention for going there. The other part, he wanted to show himself as the ultimate politician because there is a presidential election in France next year and he's going to have quite a fight on his hand with the candidates that are lining up against him. So he wanted to show, I'm the politician, I'm the miracle maker, I'm the person who can bring people together and who can uh, sort conflicts out. The third thing, of course, and you're absolutely right in your statement, he was the first international Western leader to meet with uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. And a lot of people said that this is part of the rehabilitation of the Crown Prince as he gets more and more ready to assume the mantle of power, at least in real sense, because he's actually running the country, when his father uh, dies or passes away. So put all this uh, together, and you can actually see that the recent tour of the crown prince in the other countries was for two reasons. One, because there is going to be a summit of the GCC countries, which incidentally, uh, the 42nd annual summit, which incidentally, James, is being held today, starts today, in Riyadh of the GCC. And so he wanted to get the agenda fixed before the summit started, but he also wanted to discuss Lebanon with the other uh, countries as well. Now, all of this, put it together, I think the most important label that comes out of this summit and of the movements that are taking place uh, across the GCC, Yemen notwithstanding, Lebanon notwithstanding, is... Uh, the fact that economy, the economy is what is driving this, principally this uh, reconciliation between Qatar on the one side and the other three on the other. I've always said this, and I still maintain that if I may use a, a sort of, um, how should I put it? Uh, well, I suppose in an oriental sense, it is impolite, but the tail that wags the dog in this blockade the United Arab Emirates were the ones that were motivating Saudi Arabia in some ways to continue with the blockade because the Qataris and the Saudis are far closer in their agendas and in their religious affiliations than, say, the Qataris with the United Arab Emirates. So the economy in today's world where the uh, price of a barrel of oil is uncertain where the world is going toward a greener option rather than oil, where the American oil stocks are bursting at the seam, where the Gulf people are realizing that the time will come, the day will come when they have to look for alternative uh, sources of income. All this is coming together to, uh, to uh, drive this reconciliation. And the reconciliation, or call it cooperation, call it solidarity, in the face of the challenges facing all six GCC countries, are manifold. One we've already touched upon is Iran. Another one is the COVID-19 pandemic. A third one, I would suggest, is Afghanistan's 
uncertain future under the Taliban rule. We know how Qatar uh, played a pivotal role in the rather hasty and uh, inelegant way that the Americans and the Brits uh, fled uh, Afghanistan. But that is not the end of the story. Today, Afghanistan is facing a hunger crisis. Millions of people will die this winter if something is not done. So you've got Iran, you've got COVID-19, you've got Afghanistan, you've got the conflict of, in Yemen. We touched upon that. And add to this, no matter what the assurances come from the Pentagon on the one side and the State Department on the other in America, there is uncertainty in the GCC about the degree of Washington's actual commitment to Middle Eastern security in the current era. And therefore, when you put all these together, the GCC feel a bit uneasy, a bit uncertain, and this is what makes them come together. And this is why rehabilitation on the one hand, and the French are good at this kind of reading the political uh, cards in this way, and the realities on the ground is what is making, I think, the GCC work together more. And I think, yes, there is a gradual rehabilitation. Jamal Khashoggi's atrocious murder is becoming increasingly a distant memory and people are beginning, including the counter-revolutionary aspect of things that we talked about earlier in this episode, all this is driving toward what I would call a reorientation of the uh, GCC and we can see that in uh, many different uh, ways. In the past, we've talked about uh, wine policy, ping pong policy. Today, it's football policy. Do you know what? I was actually, I'm looking at the clock and I know we're trying to keep this nice and tight. So I was going to ask you about, um, well, you know, knowing that you have an advanced driver's license, Harry, and, and a, a love of cars, vintage car in the garage, I know. A big story from the golf in the sporting sense, of course, is that the Formula One World Championship was decided in Abu Dhabi, somewhat quite controversially, actually. And the whole culmination of the season was in the Gulf in that sense. Um, is Formula One something you're in any way interested in? In this case, the expression I've often used with you that I'm not a prophet applies so well because I knew that there was a Formula One competition, that it was really on a knife edge, whether Lewis Hamilton would get his eighth title and therefore become a superhero or whether the Dutchman Verstappen would uh, stop that. And he did stop uh, that hope, although I think there is an appeal process going. But you know what? I love cars. I, uh, I don't say that I drive cars. I vroom cars when I can. <laughs> but... I must also admit to total ignorance when it comes to Formula One, which in, I agree with you happened on Gulf territory as well. And I'm sure you know more about that, just as you know more about the FIFA Arab Cup 2021 that is taking place, which actually has caught my interest far more for some reason, I don't know, than Formula One. You know, I know that you're uh, you're by far, by far, uh, a more knowledgeable football man than I am. But 
Let me just say about the FIFA Arab Cup 2021, because that is another expression of the GCC and the Arab countries uh, coming uh, together. There was talk Mm. in the past that Syria would be brought back into the Arab League, that there is a rehabilitation of Syria as there is a rehabilitation of the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. I think the rehabilitation of the latter will be faster than the former. And the Arab uh, Cup 2021, Kas Arab in Arabic, that is taking place now from the 30th of November to the 18th of December in Qatar is one uh, indication of that. Now, I have my two favorite teams. I hope they one of them will hold the Champions Cup at the end. But let me just tell you, in case you haven't seen this, because I've been following uh, this... Uh, I I love the idea that different Arab teams from all the different Arab countries are coming to fight it out peacefully and merrily on the, in those beautiful stadiums that Qatar has built for the World Cup 2022 next year and which they are using for the Arab Cup this year. And that one, you might want to check this because I know you're not only a fan of football, you play football as does your son. Um, Yusuf Belayli, I don't know if you know him. He's an Algerian. Algerian, yeah. He had a stunning 40-meter volley uh, when he scored a goal. And I would say that he's a contender for for goal of the tournament because if you look at it, it's absolutely fascinating that uh, that volley. And I thought, wow, even I, who doesn't understand much about people chasing a football, uh, I thought, wow, this is great. So have a look at that if you haven't looked at that. You and some of our listeners who are interested in, in, uh, in football. And as I said, I know what teams I like, but there is something else that drew my attention. And a dear friend of mine pointed that out to me a couple of days ago because I posted it on my Twitter handle, um, there was a picture of an, of an Algerian wearing an Algerian flag, a Tunisian wearing a Tunisian flag, or was it a Moroccan? I can't remember. Sitting on a bench, and both of them had around them the Palestinian flag. And that, to me, is heartwarming because I'm a supporter of the aspirations of Palestinians for self-determination, but also because that simple, innocuous, apolitical figure, image that was taken, picture that was taken, to me speaks volumes. It reminds me and the whole world that no matter what you do to dismiss Palestine from the map, it will reinsert itself in the map because Palestine is not only a political issue, it lives in the hearts of the Arab and Muslim worlds. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know what? I mean, you know I don't need any encouragement to talk about football, but you've you've basically led the whole thing, Harry. (laughs) I I never thought I'd be speaking to you about 40-yard wonder goals um, from Algerian talents like Lately, I mean, amazing. Uh, I believe they actually have Qatar, don't they, in the semi-final? So that will be a game. I'm sure you'll that be very interested. That is going in. to be a very good uh, game. And I'll tell you what. I'll make a confession, even if I'm showing my cards or my colours. My two favourite teams are Algeria and Qatar. Ah, uh, you see, you, I, I rather suspected so. Hence <laughs> the reason I I brought it up. 
anyway, well, look, maybe when this goes out, certain things will have been decided. So um, we'll keep an eye on that. And actually, the, the one thing that I did note as well, I mean, I'm sure you have, is that the trophy for the winners of the Arab Cup, it's very, very similar. It's like a an Arabic version of the World Cup, isn't it? Absolutely. It's, it, beautiful gold thing and you know some friends of mine who are in Doha and who have been to those beautiful really beautiful stadiums uh, have told me that it is incredible and the whole country is sort of effervescent with excitement about football my only worry is about COVID-19 and Omicron but at the moment they seem to have dodged that bullet and long may that last uh, but they're having a wonderful time. And you see so many people, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt, the Nashama of uh, Jordan, all these teams that are coming to play there for once, not killing each other and fighting each other, but actually enjoying uh, the moment, uh, chasing that round thing we call a football. Oh, Harry, you do make me laugh. But I tell you what, you, you've actually handed me a wonderful way to segue into North Africa, because obviously we're talking the Arab Cup, and the other semi-final is Tunisia versus Egypt. Yep. And of course, we've just talked about Algeria there. This takes us nicely into North Africa, does it not? It does. And for the purposes of time, I'm, I'm going to say that uh, North Africa is also in ebullition not only political, but also, in some sense, uh, violent abolition. Libya, we are all hoping, you mentioned it at the beginning of this episode about the presidential elections on the 24th of December, and then the parliamentary or legislative ones in early January of 2022. I'm not sure if it's going to happen or not, but it's really remarkable to see that three of the most prominent candidates for the presidency are also three of the most controversial ones. Uh, Bebe, who's now in government, who, who signed a promissory note saying he's not going to run for president, he is running for president. Uh, Saif al-Islam, the son of the slain uh, leader Muammar al-Qaddafi, uh, is wanted by Interpol and he wants to run in the presidency. And you have uh, Khalifa Hafter, who basically is responsible for half the problems of Libya. And I know half the Libyans now will attack me on for that statement, James. Uh, he's also going to run or wants to run for uh, presidency. But the strong man, as you once described him. The strong man, exactly. And all these three are doing their best to be in the presidential Race And interestingly enough, the committee that decides on the final list of presidential candidates hasn't yet come out with the final list. Uh, only 10 days before the elections are meant to take place because they know the mess that this will cause. And I think there, there are attempts now, both discreet and indiscreet, to postpone uh, those uh, elections. So if they postpone these elections, then you can say next time that I forecasted correctly. And if they don't postpone it, then you can tell me you've lost your art of prophecy completely. Well, I'd rather suspect you're right, but time will tell as indeed it always I does. Mean, that's, uh, that's Libya for you. And then, of course, if you look at Tunisia, which used to be the model that we always praise, the one model that survived 
the counter-revolutions. Even that one has fallen prey to the counter-revolutions and to egocentrism and autocracy because at the beginning, when President Kaiser Sayed made his move, froze parliament, did everything in order to have a one-man rule, I said, let's give him some uh, time. Maybe he's doing the right thing because I know that there were lots of Tunisians that were very, very unhappy with the state of affairs in Libya. But as we go on, I see that things uh, aren't improving. If anything, uh, the opposite is happening. And the latest uh, surprise that the president has come up with is that things are going to stay the same until summer of next year when he's calling for a constitutional referendum on a constitution that hasn't yet been uh, redrafted. So I don't know what's going to be in it. But he's saying, oh, we'll wait until next year. Uh, summer, I will continue ruling the country and then we'll have the referendum, which would lead then uh, to parliamentary elections. So I look with uh, trepidation at Tunisia, a, a wonderful country that I first discovered when Yasser Arafat, the late Yasser Arafat, leader of the Palestinians for many years, was in exile in Tunisia before he came to Ramallah. And uh, it would be interesting to see which way Tunisia goes. And as far as Algeria goes, all I would say to my listeners, to your listeners, is there's a big spat between Algeria and Morocco, two big countries, two very influential countries in the North Africa part of the Middle East, North Africa. Part of it is over uh, Mauritania. They have completely different viewpoints on it, but it is also about oil, it's also about importance, it's also about the fact that Morocco is trying to go down the normalization route with Israel, whereas Algeria is not. So interesting things bubbling up in the North Africa part of the Middle East, North Africa, James. You know what, it makes me wonder, when you used a good word there, trepidation, as to how you're looking at it, I wonder if we're going to have a podcast one day, one day, where we don't look at the whole region with trepidation, because I think that's actually a really good word to describe how I feel when we take on these realities. But never mind, Harry, look, I'm going to give you your, your usual final thoughts, and I was going to commandeer one of them. I was going to say, look, Harry, whatever your final thoughts are, I want to have one that I put to you, which is very much... Crufts for camels, if I give it a Western, if I give it a Western moniker. Um, the King Abdulaziz Camel Festival, which I have to put my hand on my heart and say I'd never heard of. Forgive me. 45 million in prize money at stake. And we've had, of course, when such money is at stake, controversy. We've had camels with stretched body parts, Harry. We've had camels with Botox. Oh, my word. T talk to me about this thing. You basically, you've said it, and I, I'm happy you brought this up because uh, this beauty pageant of camels is nothing new. Camels are very, very important for the Gulf region. They're desert animals par excellence. They're very uh, elegant, beautiful, uh, some of them. and also So they don't need Botox, Harry? Well, yes, and also, by the way, uh, James, very, very stubborn uh, animals. Uh, the, you're right. They have been. They have received Botox uh, injections, and uh, they've also had facelifts 
some of them, which is why more than 40 entries from this festival have already been, which is taking place uh, northeast in the desert, northeast of the Saudi capital of Riyadh. Uh, 40 entries have been uh, uh, disqualified. And it might interest our listeners to know, because I find this funny, uh, I've ridden camels in Jordan, in Petra, in the Rose City. I've been on the back of a camel in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. But I cannot say that I know much about camels and I've never drunk camel milk. So in a sense, I've never eaten camel meat either. But in a sense, they, they, they're they quite an interesting animals. They've got their heads strong. They've got their own ideas. And the judges of this festival will decide the winner on the shape of the animal's head, hence the Botox and the facelifts, on the neck, hence the longer the neck, the more appealing the camel, on the hump, how prominent the hump of the camel is, on their dress and on their postures. So there you are. Do you know what? I mean, every time I think I'm going to feel a little bit low after this podcast, you you come up with something to turn it around. (laughs) So the floor, Harry, is yours. We've had a good hour. We've gone through goodness knows how many realities. Very skillfully done. I feel I know more about them. The floor is yours, Harry. What else do you want to bring our way? The only thing I want to bring our way, James, is considering that this is an end of year uh, Middle East analysis, the last episode for 2021, all I want to do is to remind our listeners of the number of Arab and indigenous Christians across the whole Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions who will be celebrating uh, Christmas either on the 25th if they are following the Gregorian calendar or in early January if they're following the Julian calendar, these people are going to be celebrating Christmas. Now, most of the Christians of the Middle East, North Africa, prominently the Middle East, are Arab indigenous Christians. They were born there, they speak Arabic, they belong to the Arabic uh, uh, culture, and they will be celebrating it. In North Africa, there are also in Libya, in Tunisia, in uh, uh, other countries, there are also Arab Christians, North African Christians will be celebrating uh, Christmas. And contrary to them, there will be even more uh, Christians. Of course, Egypt has the largest uh, indigenous Christian population, uh, roughly 8 million plus. But the in the Gulf, there are even larger numbers of Christians in Saudi Arabia and the other GCC countries, but they are expatriate Christians. Most of them, the overwhelming majority, are not Arab. But whether Arab or not Arab, no matter how you look at them, it is Christmas. And Christmas, as I've said in my YouTube episode recently, as I've said in other, on other occasions, is not only about marshmallows and chestnuts, it's not only about mistletoes and uh, fun, it's also about a religious uh, festival. It's the birth for Christians of their prophet, their messiah, their savior. So to all of these uh, Christians across the region, I say once more, Merry Christmas, Blessed Christmas, Eid Milad Sa'id, 
Eid Milad Majid to you all and may 2022 be a better year COVID notwithstanding for you James for me and for everybody else and perhaps it is a posite to end not only by thinking of Christmas and Jesus but introducing there another one of those people I have a lot of time for and that's Cicero why because everything we said today the one hour plus that we've been talking is condensed in some way to what Cicero stated a very long time ago you know what he said he said any man can make mistakes but only an idiot persists in his error how true and i wish i could learn from that but i haven't still mastered that art wow that actually that really did move me i think if only if only some of those leaders and those uh, influencers and those taking part in proxy wars maybe read over that quote again i mean i doubt it will make any difference but it certainly is profound and i should allow you to finish on the profound but i'm not because when you were talking about the camels harry you described them as stubborn animals and do you know what it made me think what i thought that actually we should change our logo to a camel because you and i probably are two of the most stubborn animals that it is possible to find on the face of this planet so i thought well that sounds a bit like me and you so maybe the camel could be the image of Middle East analysis, what do you reckon? I have absolutely no problem having uh, a camel for the December image of Middle East analysis. I think it would be a wonderful idea. Might I just make a small, modest request, uh, James, when you're looking for that uh, camel as the image for MEA December 2021, make sure not only that it's got a nice head, a nice neck, a nice hump, but that it's also got nice eyelashes. <laughs> I, w- I, w- I would check that out. I don't want any cheating. Otherwise, I'm not likely to get any of that prize money. Harry, look, I have to thank you, not just for this particular December Middle East analysis, but for all your contributions this year. It has been, as always, fascinating for me. It has been wonderful to have your friendship as well as your expertise and analysis. So I offer you a huge Um, thank you a big debt of thanks and um, I do hope you yourself have a good Christmas I know you've got a million things on and all all manner of challenges to meet over the the month ahead so um, good luck with that prayers and blessings and um, thanks ever so much Harry and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year James to you and to your family thanks Harry take good care